0: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
1: The Squareball Podcast. Hello there and welcome to the show. Dan here from the Square Ball, along with Michael Normanton. The show is brought to you in association with Levi Solicitors, our sponsor, a long-time sponsor who do all sorts of stuff, Michael, including...
2: Will's Probate Conveyance in the yep. big three. Employment law. Employment law. Dispute resolution. Yeah. I mean, if you've got, a, for example,
1: a contracted employee who's, I don't know, Difficult. Refu- refusing to do the job, yeah. whatever, you can maybe Any difficulties. contact Levi Solicitors. LeviSolicitors.co.uk forward slash the square ball for a 10% discount on your legal fees. Um, Angus Kinnear's here, CEO of, um, of Leeds United. Thanks for coming in. Appreciate it. Pleasure. I think before we get into it, we've learned a little bit from experience now of doing these over the last couple of years. We want to, I think, lay out our approach a little bit just for the benefit of the the viewer and the listener because one of the most frequent comments we get, our criticisms, is you were too hard, you were too soft, you didn't ask X or Y, didn't challenge something enough. Um, And I think we just, we want to say from our point of view, we can't possibly get everything right in everybody's eyes all the time with something like this. And obviously, because things have not been great, should we say, in the last year or two at the club, um, it's quite a sensitive time. It's more delicate, a bit more sensitive than the last couple of years. Um, because basically people are pissed off with what's happened. So we understand that. There will be people wanting us to really dig you out on this, um, but we're here to have a conversation. It's I think it's easy on forums, Twitter, in the stadium to shout um, or be behind a keyboard, but we're in a room, the strivers in a room. We just want to have a chat and hopefully that's all right and we will do our best to ask you the questions that people want answering, we can't speak for everybody. It's just, it's just not possible to do it, and we've got a limited time, so we'll just do our best.
2: Well, in saying we just want to have a chat, does sound itself vaguely threatening. Sounds like the sort of thing you'd <laughs> say to someone as you guide them into down a dark alley. But yeah,
1: and we don't, we don't speak for anybody but ourselves. We can't do, we can't possibly represent all Leeds fans. We know that, so just you know, forgive us any any shortcomings in this one, and we'll we will do our best with it. And, and with that in mind,
3: first question is then, why do this? Because it would have been easier not to, wouldn't it? Definitely easier not to. I think it's a, um, well, it's become an annual fixture. So I think, you know, the year that you have a really challenging year like, like we had, um, and it was miserable for everybody is, is not the year to say, is to, to shy away from, from giving the fan base the, the answers that they, they deserve. You know, I think we, we were conscious not to do this, um, you know, during the transfer window. I know that'll be a point of discussion. I think we, we, we talked halfway through and said, you know, we wanted to be judged at the end of the transfer window. But, um, I think it's increasingly difficult for clubs, particularly when you're not winning, to find constructive ways to to share the challenges and the, and the decisions that you're making within a football club. Because if you're not winning games, everything that you do is bad. And you know, that's what we've seen. You know, when we were winning games under Marcelo, everything that the club did was brilliant. And when we're not winning matches, everything that the club does is, is, uh, is, is viewed entirely differently. So I think it's a good opportunity to review the last year, to talk about the decisions we made, what we got wrong. Why we're not going to get it wrong again, and and also talk with some uh, with some positivity about the year year ahead because I'm I'm really excited about it. And
1: you obviously you understand why there is a breakdown in trust with the club based on what, what's happened. The
3: results are everything, aren't they? At the end of the day, absolutely. The the um being a custodian of a club is is difficult because there is only one real metric that, that matters, and that's that's results on the pitch. And we can do you know fantastic things with a foundation. We can drive our commercial revenues. We can you know we can we can sell more shirts. Uh, we can do brilliant work in the academy, all of which I think we've done. I think there's lots of things over the last um, six years where the trajectory continues to, be, continues to be upwards. But we all know that we're going to be viewed through the, through the metric of whether we won football matches and winning seven matches in a season is miserable for everybody and it colours absolutely everything which happens around the club. And that's why the mantra within the club, and, and particularly for this season, is, is football first. And we've got to start by getting things right on the pitch. Do you agree that things have basically spiralled out of control since Marcelo
1: Bielsa? Was is that, is that a fair statement? And then can you talk us through what's happened there at the club since then from your point of view?
3: I don't think it's spiralled out of control, but I think there are, uh, there are a couple of factors which have made things really challenging. And the first one is trying to replace a manager who had as much success and played as great football and connected with a fan base in, in such a special way that Marcelo did. And you know, lots of clubs have found the transition from somebody who's been particularly successful to a new manager Really difficult, and we knew it was going to be a difficult transition, and we wanted to make the right decision, and, and and it didn't work, and and I think that has, um, you know, on the pitch has caused us issues that that you know the Premier League is so unforgiving. Once you get those things right, you know, everybody when you speak to sort of my counterparts in the Premier League, they know you know you are one one managerial appointment. You know, if you if you get one managerial appointment wrong, if you're in the bottom half of the league, you know you have a very high chance of going down. Similar if you have a bad window. Uh, and the players you recruit don't work. You have a very high chance of going down. And, you know, both of those things, I think, coincided last year, which made it particularly challenging. And I think from a supporter perspective and, you know, perhaps the sort of sense that things are spiralling out of control is probably linked to the fact that we, you know, we've we've managed to coincide getting relegated with a, with a fairly challenging ownership transition as well. And uh, I think if we had a long-term custodian in the shape of the 49ers and maybe they bought it a year earlier... Then perhaps the fan base would have been more relaxed about—not relaxed, but they would have seen, uh, felt more confident about the ability to return. But I think from a, a supporter perspective, I, I, I see how they perceive things going wrong on the pitch with a lack of certainty from an ownership perspective, being being a position where the club was was out of control. But I don't think we are. I think we're uh, we're, we're back in control, and I think we've still got a very uh, a very strong foundation for the season ahead.
1: So just going to back to the appointment of Jesse Marsh, and he was sold to us as the the natural successor to Marcelo Bielsa but to my eyes the players didn't look fit enough they looked undercoached stressed funnily enough is that fair? was he how, how in what way was he a natural successor to Marcelo Bielsa who was built on possession and even early analysis like Moscow our colleague Moscow picked it out immediately the Red Bull mantra is to give up possession and we saw that immediately the, the players looked
3: terrible in possession yeah, I mean, it was it was there were there were certain things that uh, that I think um, Victor saw from a technical perspective when he was looking at coaches, which which showed that there were some there were some synergies. Now um, it was very difficult to, I mean, we all know Marcelo is you know he's the definition of unique in every asset of aspect of his of his personality and and of and his and of his football outlook. So trying to find a uh, anybody who was going to to be able to deliver in the same way he did was going to be difficult. But we certainly saw from uh, from uh, Jesse's pressing stats, from the running stats, that you know there were there were we thought he was going to be able to leverage the fact that the team was really fit. We thought that was an important part of his his game. I think you're right. I think the the, the fitness did the, did fall away, and we didn't expect that. We thought the the pressing was going to be done in a more pragmatic way. So we thought that there were some challenges in the uh, in the man to man approach, which was at the time considered you know resulting as having some very significant losses. In lots of games, by lots of goals, in a way that I think the opposition had had, had worked out what was happening, and, and we didn 't have a way to to combat it, so we thought that Jesse was going to to bring a, a more pragmatic style of, of play, which was perhaps going to be better adapted to the Premier League when you 're playing against stronger opposition and, and and perhaps you respect the opposition you know a bit more and clearly. You know, clearly it didn't work for a, you know for a number of reasons, and I think you know partly um, you know Jesse would say, and Jesse worked very very hard for the club. He was very committed. He was, uh, as he said, he was you know he was always all in. He was devastated to lose the role, but sometimes you know it's 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 a combination of uh, of timing and the players that, that that they have available to them. And uh, you know, I, I remember when we uh, we hired uh, Paul Heckingbottom, and everybody you know told me it was a, it was a disgraceful decision, a disgraceful hire, and he was a low level coach and not befitting of Leeds United. And yet, two three years later, he's getting you know Sheffield United promoted on a on a budget far less than we spent at Leeds United when we got promoted. So, I think um you know I think Jesse would hold his hands up and say that it didn't work, but um you know he had a very very good track record as being as being a coach. But um you know we have to we have to accept it it failed and it also failed from a recruitment perspective. And I think you know Jesse would point out that uh, the two managers that followed him didn't do any better than 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 he did. And I think uh, you know we we struggled with the loss of uh, of Calvin and Rafinha. One of the things that uh, Sam Allardyce said when he came in was that he felt the club lacked any world-class players. And he said in the Premier League, even the worst teams normally have one or two kind of world-class players, whether that's a, a Madison or a Ward-Prowse or, or a Tielemans. And I think, you know, we lost those in, in Calvin and Rafinha that we had to sell for both football reasons and financial reasons. And uh, the theory was that in the transfer window, we'd be able to spread that, uh, that income across... Um, a number of signings would be stronger in more positions and because those signings didn't work, then
2: we weren't. When did you feel it started going wrong for Marsh? Because it felt, obviously we had a decent start to the season, but it felt as early as the Leicester game that it probably wasn't working and maybe was, wasn't going to work. But from, from the kind of understanding we have from the club side is that he was very much Victor Auto's man. Victor was backing him pretty much to the end. So when did, but when did you feel maybe we've made a mistake here?
3: I think there was, uh, you know, so we had some early, early good signs. You know, we had a good result against Chelsea, which, which, you know, perhaps flattered to deceive a little bit because then everybody had a good result against Chelsea. But at the time, that felt like it was, it was a good result. I think in the, in the run up to Christmas, we all as a board were thinking that, that we were in a, we in a difficult position and, and the trajectory wasn't, you know, wasn't moving in the right direction. You have to remember that, you know, I think Jesse did a good job. In the season that he he joined and when he kept us up, you know we're in a diff- we're in a difficult position. And you know he he fought and, and won games that we perhaps didn't think we were going to win, and, and and he kept us up. But I think there was there was after the initial couple of games, I think we were very good at home to Arsenal as well. A game I think we should have won, and there was some you know there were some positive signs there. So we put Chelsea and Arsenal together; it looked positive. We then had a had a significant dip, and I think and I think I know you've discussed it on the show. It was probably the uh, the, the Bournemouth and Liverpool games. Um, at the end of that period, before before the international break, where again, we thought perhaps we were moving in, in the right direction. Perhaps if we hadn't have had those those two results, we might have made the decision earlier. Do you think that was a
1: failure of of management though, by not making that decision at that time? Because the majority of verdicts I think about that time was, that, look, this is probably not working I mean, going the, into the we, World Cup break. It was, it was the perfect, given the number of breaks we had in the season, surely it's a failing of management if you don't act at the right time to give yourself the best chance of of turning this around because
2: the Bournemouth game was a win but it was a fairly disastrous unstructured performance they could have been going in with another couple of goals before half time so it felt like it was 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 a fluky
1: late win wasn't it it, it? and it
2: felt like actually particularly looking back on it you look back at Marsh's first season and you have to attribute staying up to some fluky wins as well because like the Wolves game which ultimately our three points made the differences of of us staying up we were going nowhere in that game we were not breaking them down we were getting they looked like they would score probably another couple, then oh, hell breaks loose, there's a red card. It, the whole game changes on it. But it feels like that if we're base, if we're calling Marsh's first season success, it's essentially boils down to one player being yeah. sent
1: off. The margins of success, if you're to define it as a success, were so minimal and so narrow that it's very, very hard to call mm-hmm. it either a success or a no, failure,
2: I mean, isn't it? I, I think, you know, he he
3: came in with a task for a team which which generally around the club we felt we were in a very difficult, you know, we were in a very difficult situation. The feeling around the club you know, both in the dressing room and in the medical team and in the board was that we were, you know, we were in having a severe risk of, of being relegated. And he came in, and it was a, I don't think it was ever expected that we were going to then romp to safety. It was always going to be very fine, and he did it by fine margins. But ultimately, you know, his job was to keep us up, and 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 he and he and
1: he did that. But but there are recent examples of look like, at what Villa did by bringing in the right manager in the form of and he took them from a position which was I think was below us in the table at one point, and took them up to towards. European it, qualification it
3: absolutely happens so, I mean if you look at if you look at the if you look at the stats of when you make a managerial choice a managerial change after about halfway point in the season if you're in a relegation scenario it's basically a toss of the coin about whether it works or not so that's the stats it's a 50-50 chance so 50% of occasions the manager changes things in the way it did for Unai Emery and I think Unai Emery is a manager that we couldn't we couldn't afford or secure but you know proved out to be proved to be an excellent you know an excellent choice. But there are equally as many teams who make, the, who make the managerial change then and then and then don't and don't and don't. But it's, but it's not a
1: flip of a coin going into the World Cup break, is it? When you know you've got a, a, another clear window to do another, a, another pre-season. Surely the, the change yeah, should well, be I mean, made.
3: And, and I appreciate we're speaking with the aid of hindsight, of course. I, I mean, ob- obviously the, the decision, you know, the decision was, I mean, it's, I can't hide it or defend it. It was wrong, you know, based on where we ended up. Um, it was the wrong decision because we got relegated and that's what everybody was, everybody was trying to avoid. And uh, um, it was debated a lot at the time and, you know, I thought, I don't know how many wins we had at that stage, whether we had four or four or five wins at just before the halfway point of the season, maybe it was four. And, you know, you need nine wins to stay up. I think by that stage, we knew that we were in, um, we were in a fight. We are in, we in a scrap. So it wasn't going to be, it was going to be difficult to turn things around with the with managerial candidates available to, to be challenging in, in mid-table. And, um, and there was a decision about whether Jesse was better than the alternatives at keeping the club up. But you're, you're completely right. We had the decision again, knowing what we know now, we'd have absolutely made the change then and it was a good opportunity. We can't deny the fact it was a very good opportunity to make the change because of that window and I think I think we were not fooled but we were um we were led by the two good results going into that to fe- feeling that you know you need nine wins to stay up and we felt that you know we were we were halfway there and getting two back to back was something that um that we should be
2: able to replicate in the second half of the season. But in the boardroom at that stage are you all coming to an agreement on this or is it the case that some of you are still thinking there should be a change? Others are arguing. No, this, we've turned a corner here. This is going. This is going to see us through the season. Yeah, I mean, without
3: going into the individual involved, there wasn't alignment in, in the board at that stage. There's there's a lot of lot of opinions, and you've got to remember that we we watch it through the same lens that you know all the supporters do. So you know most of what supporters say is you know a lot of the time you 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 know you'd agree with it. You know the performances weren't good enough, but when you have to look at uh, what's the type of change you can make, what type of manager can you can you get in? what are the chances of that manager making it better in it, over that period? You have to take all those things into account. But as I said, again, clearly the wrong decision and a change would have been
1: would have been better at that point. The way you explain it there though, it feels like Leeds United seem to make that excessively hard compared to other teams. And obviously, yeah, I'm going to be drawing on the examples of the teams that did stay up as opposed to the ones that didn't yeah. who might have made changes. But uh, there's an expectation that we should be, within the fans, I guess, conducting ourselves at a certain level. And it feels like we've always made those sorts of decisions very, very difficult or laboured and you know, you, we, we could all see it spiralling out of control. I mean, just to go back to the recruitment, if I could, you mentioned the recruitment. I mean, you recruited 50 or 60 million quid's worth of players from Red Bull for Jesse. Was, yeah. was there a, perhaps, was that part of the thinking, where well, we've kind of got to see this through now because we've recruited the players for him?
3: Well, I think there was, um, you know, one of the things when you make a change mid-season is even when you have the international break and you've got a number of players away and, and, you know, it's not a proper pre-season, is whether a new coach can come in and have that impact over five to six months. And obviously, we'd we'd, uh, we'd we'd you know vested heavily in in Jesse, in terms of his backroom staff, in terms of him, in terms of the in terms of the players that we'd recruited. You know, we felt that those players were, you know, as I think you know Tyler Adams proved, were were players who were who were good enough to to, to play under any manager. But ultimately, I think you know if you look at if you look at the recruitment of those five or six players, you know, they were all probably, you know, they all probably ended up being five out of tens, and they needed to be seven out of tens. And if you rec- if you recruit, if you lose your two best players. And recruit a number of players that are only five out of 10s and you give yourself a problem.
1: about the backroom staff then as well you mentioned it there. W- was that ever strong enough in your opinion? I think there were concerns among the fans uh, that it took a long time to bring in coaches to work with Jesse and, and did that
3: set us back? Yeah, I think it was you know one of the, one of the learnings. I think uh, you know we Jesse struggled to, to pull the backroom staff together in the way that I think would have been ideal and it was a direct contrast to the, to the process we ran we ran this summer where the, uh, one of the sort of non-negotiables for us was that, was that whoever we recruited came with a full, a full backroom setup. Well, not a full backroom setup, but, but, the, but the, the top end of a backroom setup, you know, a coaching team that they trusted, had worked with before. Um, and interestingly, when we, when we had an interview with Daniel, before we even got to that point, he, he said exactly the same thing. He said that uh, he came with his backroom staff and it was non-negotiable that we were hiring a team, not an individual. And I think that was, uh, you know, it replicated how Marcelo had operated as well. You don't just hire Marcelo; you hire his you hire his backroom team. And I think that was a, you know, a good learning going forward. Obviously, when we had the interviews with with Jesse, he uh, he had uh, you know names and ideas of people he wanted to bring, but but bringing that team together was 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 harder than he thought. And I think you know what we've done with Daniel is is much better that he came. You know, that he came with his 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 three key lieutenants and then uh, and then brought in Ed. As a goalkeeping coach, to to sort of complete a team, and he's got a team who've worked to you know they've worked together for you know five or six years, and I think that um, that's definitely going to bring some benefit this season.
1: You mentioned before the, the the technical aspects of of what Jesse Marsh said he was he was bringing into into the club. Did you find that those things in reality didn't materialise
3: when you looked at the football? Yeah, I don't. I mean, I think Jesse would say they didn't materialise. I mean, that would be can can ask what they were that, that that would be his. I mean, he said the pressing stance. His, I, I think, you know, his the. He uh, felt that, uh, you know, what he uh, his his vision was that uh, uh, the press would be more intense and that when the ball was won, it'd be won in areas which were more dangerous for the, for, for the opposition. And then he would have players who'd have the guile to convert uh, winning the ball in those higher areas into goals. And, you know, bar a couple of games, I don't think we saw that.
2: I guess when you come in from a league where you have the highest budget and the standard is lower, it can work. But then it was underestimated, I guess, both by him And by Victor Alta choosing him as thinking that that would that would just translate easily. I think
3: I think one of the one of the challenges for for recruitment of managers, but also recruitment for players, and it's a lot of the data work that we'd be doing this summer is is trying to understand the ease of transition from somebody coming from a lower league into a higher league, or from a a different international league into another league. And you know we know that the. the Premier League is a different standard to, to, to every single other other league that exists, and you know one of the things we put as as a recruitment criteria when we were hiring when we were hiring Daniel is uh, they had to be managing in a top four league in Europe, and also Daniel moved in, managed in the Premier League as well. But we wanted somebody who'd managed you know both in the top four league and in the Premier League because that transition risk is um, is, is significant. And I think I think it's something I think we I don't know, we touched upon in our in our last conversation, but I think if I was to be critical of, of the sort of overarching approach that we took, I think there was a desire from all of the board, but, you know, particularly from Andrea, because he's a, he's a, you know was, was an ambitious guy, was that we wanted to really put Leeds on a, on a very uh, steep trajectory into Europe. And to do that on the budgets we had, we had to take, you know, I think bigger risks in terms of the players that we recruited and the manager that we recruited and trying to find somebody that would maybe overperform. If I could have the time, if I could have the time again... I would have taken a, uh, and this is through, the, through through hindsight, I'd have taken a more kind of pragmatic approach and talked about and, you know, come up with a, uh, you know, I think a managerial hire and playing hires, which really, you know, secured Premier League status over a longer period rather than having, you know, one good season and then struggling for, a, you know, struggling for a couple. We talk a lot about the, uh, the Brighton model. And obviously, you know, in fact, a few years ago, we were talking about the Leicester model and you can see how that turned out. We're now talking about the, the Brighton model. And Brighton are a fantastically well-run club and uh, you know, I've got huge admiration for, for Tony as an owner and, uh, and Paul Barber as a CEO, who just, you know, is a fantastic football administrator. But if you look at the first four years, so there's a few things to think about Brighton. The first thing is their ownership. They've had 14 years of ownership. So it's taken them 14 years to get to the point now Or I think you could say they're probably one of the best run clubs in, in Europe. But their four, first four seasons in the Premier League, I think they finished 17th, 15th, 16th and 15th so it wasn't an immediate transformation into a team which was going to you know, take on the big six. It was year after year of just scraping, you know, scraping safety. And I think if I'd had the time again, you know, I think we just needed to be a bit more pragmatic, um, a bit more conservative, and you know, probably hire managing, you know, a manager and a coaching team and players who gave you more of a guarantee, perhaps less of an upside of finishing higher up the league, but more of a guarantee of retaining your Premier League status, which then provides you for a platform to grow uh, you know, over a longer period.
2: We did get this year's you know, steep trajectory on the on the plus side. It felt it felt a little bit like Bielsa basically ran Leeds United. He, I was listening back to the old interviews. He had more or less his hand on every every single part of it. It felt like when he left, probably there was a bit of a void there, and maybe some of Victor's ideas came to the fore, and then Marsh came in and some of his ideas came, and essentially their ideas were not as good. And when you saw when you saw Biel, we saw Leeds United fancy Bielsa. Pre-League United Bielsa and post Bielsa League United and they look kind of similar in the way that they're disjointed and the players that have been bought don't fit. And it was just a, a window in the middle where he made them fit. So I think that's where a lot of the a lot of the grief for the board comes from, is because people see people see the before the after, and they reach the conclusion that, well, it was just it was all Bielsa. And without without him, nothing worked.
3: Yeah, and I, I can I can understand that. I mean, I think it's, you know, I've been in a club which had it was in a similar position with uh, with Arsene Wenger, and you know Manchester United have the same. When you have somebody who is who is so iconic and does run the club, and one of the things we also liked about about Daniel was you know Daniel uh, you know when we were negotiating the contract didn't want to be called head coach. He said, "I'm not head coach; I'm first team manager." And well, that's only a sort of semantic change in terms of job title. It actually sums up his approach, which is much more like Marcelo's, which is, "I want to run everything." Daniel is not going to report into a director of football. Daniel. Is going to is going to run the football department with this you know with the assistance of a, of a technical director and head of recruitment and head of football operations and we can you know we've, we've we've done a lot to to restructure the football department over the summer to give us more breadth of expertise in, in those areas and I think I think we've done a we've done a good job there but I think you're uh, I think you're right you know we're trying to transition from somebody who has who has defined the club and been so influential and you know and, and led the turning of a you know of a massive ship round from sort of sixteen years of decline. To you know, to such success is always going to be really is always going to be really challenging, and I can understand because of the fans' affection. I understand the fans are, you know, are always going to, uh, um, you know, he will always be quite rightly, you know, their hero, and you know, no one's ever going, you know, and the board are always going to have to take responsibility when we're when we're not successful. But I also think, you know, Marcelo would say that that the board were, you know, hugely supportive of him. You know, we created an environment where he was able to work. The recruitment for him over that period was was excellent. I think, you know, Victor, you know, has his critics, but I think that team with, with Alioski and Klitsch and Harrison and Ben White and Ilan Melier and all the people who, who helped get us promoted and helped get us to ninth in the league, you know, that, that was, there was a, uh, there was a collective behind Marcelo. I think all of, all of the guys, particularly the guys who, who worked up at, at Thorpe Arch, the, uh, you know, the medical team and the fitness coaches, and they created a wonderful environment around him. But I would never diminish the the influence that the he had and you know from a personal perspective often sort of I think people seem to seem that there was some kind of tension between uh him and the board but from a personal perspective it will always be the you know the greatest days of my career you know I, you know this I used to sit in meetings with him and have imposter syndrome that I was sitting and listening for 3 hours being lectured to by by a football genius it was it was a it was a wonderful experience you know inside the club and uh,
1: and outside the club the problem is though he, he said back me or replace me and and neither happened and I'm not suggesting for one second it would have been the right thing to replace him having finished ninth and I guess that's where the the problem arises but he did flag that up at the time and it feels like the club didn't
3: listen you thought there was a third way no I think I mean I think it was it was his definition of and it was it wasn't a it wasn't a a, a tense conversation it was you know what he meant by by uh, back him was he said we need to replace the whole squad and we weren't in a position to be able to do that with, with the calibre of players that, that, that he wanted. And that was the reality of, of the ownership at the time. So it wasn't back me in, I need a couple more players. It was, you know, he'd always said, my methods have a, have a two-year timeline. You know, players will emotionally and physically will struggle with that. And that's why I think in one of the interviews, I sort of said that we felt there was a timeline to it. And it was, I think I offended some people by suggesting that, you know, he was he was a sort of dead man walking. He wasn't. He was the one who had always said, that his methods needed to be needed to be refreshed and renewed, and uh, the way he suggested that was done by was a, was a, was by a huge squad overhaul that a club which has only just been promoted and you know wasn't backed by the type of funding that some other clubs are are backed by. We didn't have the capability to do. Is, is that a failure of ownership? You think at that point that the owner then says, "Well,
1: okay, I don't have the the means to take this onto the next level. I've got one of the." As you say, one of the geniuses of world football telling me this. This is what needs to happen. This is how you kick on to the next level. It felt like, based on what you were saying about the aggressive trajectory to try and get into Europe quickly, it was almost trying to like game the system. It might have even, you know, been delusional when you've got Marcelo Bielsa there saying to you, "Look, we need to overhaul the squad and we do it this way."
3: And yeah, then- I mean, I mean, I think you know, if there is, there's lots of ways you can you can criticize Adre- Andrea, but you know, fundamentally, you know, and I think he would hold his hands up to this is. You know, he didn't have the per, you know he invested he invested incredibly generously in the in the squad over his over his six years. Um, to, you know, took huge risks, including hiring you know Marcelo for who was on you know, you know no other no other club in the championship would have hired Marcelo based on not on, on terms of the individual, but in terms of in terms of his you know financial requirements. It was a really bold move by Andrea, but Andrea doesn't have the uh, you know doesn't have the wealth to compete in the Premier League. Right. He just doesn't as an and doesn't as an individual. And if you look at that, I mean even. Even in bright, you know, Brighton. I think to go back to them, I think Brighton certainly in twenty twenty two, you know, they were they owed Tony Bloom four hundred million pounds. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the level that you have to invest to, to finish, you know, fifteenth, sixteenth, and seventeenth four years running. So, I don't know whether you can criticize a guy for for not being rich enough, but I would have said about Andrea. I then. mean, football fans do that's just yeah, the of nature course, of no, it, of isn't it? it. Of, of course they do. And but you know, I would say Andrea probably probably put at risk more of his personal you know net worth than any other owner in the Premier League. Now that's not enough to be competitive, but, um, you know, and I think if we were in a different world, if we, you know, perhaps had the, uh, you know, had the 49ers funding and full ownership at that stage, maybe there would have been a different direction with, with, with Marcelo and we could have supported him in the way we supported him. But I think what's important to, to recognise is this wasn't a, I need 30 million or I need 40 million. This was, I need an overhaul of players. And the players he wanted were 40 and 50 million pound players. And of course he wanted 40 and 50 million pound players because that's what you need to be successful he you know he loved ben white ben white is a 55 million pound player he loved calvin phillips calvin phillips is a 50 million pound player to really compete at that level that's that's the type of of purchase you need to be able to make and i think as well it's particularly challenging when the team had had just got promoted because the reason why teams go down is because they uh is because managing that squad churn and managing a team that were very good in the championship and maybe can have one good year in the in the Premier League. I think Sheffield United when they went up had you know had one good year before before they went you know they they went down again. Is um, you have to manage that churn really aggressively and that how you manage it is is difficult and you get players like um, who've been you know fantastic servants for the club and you have someone like you know Pablo who who you know felt like at the time he almost got single handedly got us promoted. And they are, you know, very difficult to accept that they, you know, need to move on and 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 how you know and how you replace them and you you know come to someone like like Clicky who couldn't play forty games a year for three years in a row like he you know like he did for the, for the long term and I think you know managing that managing that difficult and you know Marcelo was right to take us to the next level we needed you know a completely different level of funding
2: I think where Andrea's ownership comes into it is that it felt like even in the in the summer before he chose to leave it felt like the 49ers were there and there was maybe a deal to be done but it felt like he was hanging on whether or not for financial reasons or for personal relevance I suppose I know there's the, the Ken Bates thing about an ex-chairman being a nobody like whether or not he felt like he wanted to do more when actually there was no real way of doing it on the money he had
3: I think the very very clear Andrea was you know Andrea sold reluctantly in the end you know he loved his association with, with, with Leeds United for, for, all, for all sorts of reasons so you know is there a criticism that he, that he could have you know sold earlier Potentially, and I think you know one of the biggest decisions for for a uh, you know for a custodian is when to to know that you know you've taken the club as as far as you could. And again, in hindsight, maybe if he'd have sold, you know, when we stayed up on the last day at Brentford, you know, his legacy would have been made, you know, kept intact. It have certainly been a better financial decision for him to do it to do it at that point. But I think um, the reason why owners are prepared to put millions of pounds of their own money into clubs is, is it's not for financial reasons; it's for, for emotional reasons. And if they're if they're buying it for emotional reasons, then I think you have to accept that that they might not be completely rational when they sell it.
1: You mentioned um, Brentford there, and and talking about uh, managing squad churn and staying up and sustaining yourself in the Premier League. Why can they do
3: it on much smaller revenues? I mean, Brentford have you know again, Brentford and Brighton have moved into a position where they both have a fantastic model. I, I don't think it's any coincidence that that their ownership, um, you know, both come from the same industry. Both have uh, what I think is generally regarded in, in across all of football as a data-based advantage, both in terms of their selection of players, but also what we call their game model as well, which is you know, which is statistically understanding the decisions that you need to make in games to maximise your chances of success. And I think you know they are they are the envy of of world football at the moment in terms of in terms of how both those clubs have run. But they come from a very specific background. We think going forward that creating a competitive advantage in in data analytics is going to be essential to any club's success. There's a lot of talk about about how data is used. I think a lot of it is used um completely sub suboptimally there is there is more and more data available in terms of player tracking in terms of player analytics but how it is analyzed I think is uh is generally quite weak and the 49ers already um, put a significant investment in that area and I think you know when you look at in 10 years time the top clubs in European football will be clubs who have uh you know have mastered data analytics and if you look at Man City or Liverpool you know you'll see they are recruiting uh, you know data scientists from uh, from from NASA and Google to come in and run those departments for them and uh, you know the reality is in the championship we didn 't have that we didn 't have that capability I think Brighton and Brentford have it because of their uh, their kind of gambling their ga- kind of gambling heritage and it 's being transferred brilliantly by uh, by by the ownership and you know that 's an area we
1: need to we need to get better at was our data analysis good enough when it came to the recruitment of jesse Marsh and the players
3: no i, don't. I mean i, th- I think our, I think our data analysis is um, is probably standard for the industry, but it's not a competitive advantage. And I think, you know, in both of the, in, in both the player recruitment and you've got to remember on, and I think this is, you know, when you speak to Brighton about how they do it, although, the, although data plays an important part, they also have, you know, they also do a lot of sort of, uh, of softer profiling around, around <laughs> the character of players around, uh, you know, emotional intelligence around their fit in the squad. And, uh, you can identify players who, who fit really well from a data perspective and then they, you know, and they still, and uh, they're still unsuccessful. And if you look at, you know, transfers in the marketplace, you've got teams like, you know, Manchester United spending and Arsenal spending tens of millions of pounds on transfers of players who, who, who fail significantly. So, you know, data is not the, the, uh, the kind of silver bullet at the moment to get those things right.
1: So just returning to the timeline, then we've gone from Jesse Marsh via a, uh, Long and winding route there but Javi Gracia comes in and can you just talk us through that period at the club why Javi was brought
3: in and why he was let go before the end of the season? At the time we were you know and it was it was no uh, it was no secret that we were looking for somebody for a uh, for a project to to save our Premier League status at that stage it was it was not a it was not a long term hire whereas I think with Jesse It'd been, you know, someone Victor had tracked for a long while. And he thought he could, you know, manage the club for a number of years, not just not just save us from relegation. Uh, Javi came in for, with a specific job to do. We thought he uh, had a good sense of what needed to change in the team. We thought that uh, he was going to be, you know, pragmatic and, and and get the results that that were needed. And, uh, um, you know, it started reasonably well and we thought it was, you know, we thought he, he would have been able to, to to do the job and was going to correct some of the kind of more glaring errors that I think the supporter base was seeing that we saw from a kind of maybe, you know, a tactical or performance perspective. And by the end, I think, you know, the performance at Bournemouth from a, uh, um, you know, from an ownership perspective felt so far below the standard that was required to, to keep us up at the, uh, you know, uh, over the last four games that you know he was let go because we just felt uh, that he'd lost the dressing room, and we needed one last throw of the dice with somebody who might not from a tactical perspective, but just from a sort of leadership perspective. Really, by that stage, it, we were in kind of miracle territory.
2: To go back to the the appointment of him in the first place, um, when you when we were placing Bielsa with Marsh, there was a lot of talk about how Victor Alter is always looking at the next step anyway, and there's a list of people, and you kind of you he's always talking to people in the background, whereas when he we came to get rid of Marsh, it felt very much like we did that and then we're going blindly into the market because it was it was very... And when we got Gracia, he was very clearly not the first choice. We'd gone after... It was talk of Slot, of slot, Then Alfred Schroeder was at games, obviously, obviously on the verge of being appointed. And then in the end, we get Gracia. So how did we go from being... So prepared for the departure of Bielsa to having seemingly no idea what came after Marsh.
3: So the process was the the process was the same. So the the people identified at that stage, you know, should it be decided that Jesse shouldn't continue, were Iraola, Slot, and Raoul. Raoul had told us earlier in the season that he was he wasn't prepared to come to Leeds at that point. Iraola and Slot had both told us that they would prepared to come to Leeds and would be made available. And then when the the process started, obviously happens quite quickly. Ireola decided that he wouldn't wasn't prepared to come anymore even though he had an exit clause and slot i think had misjudged the sort of vehemence of his club to to keep him and uh you know there's only so much you can do in terms of those conversations about you know you, you can't sign a manager before before you so so those conversations were good they were warm we thought that both of those were would would have been candidates and so javi was was definitely further down the list and i think both of those candidates had you know had a greater pre- pedigree than than javi and could have been longer term hires and i think the fact that Iraola has, you know, has ultimately found a Premier League, uh, a Premier League job. Uh, suggests that you know we weren't the only people to think that he was a uh, he was a, an appropriate candidate.
2: I think that just it adds to the feeling that things completely slipped away from us, though. To to go into that thinking, we can get a, a, one of the the hottest prospects of European coaching in, in slaughter Iraola to then end up with. With the greatest respect to him, an ex-Watford manager, and I know there are lots of those. And then to when the season, just with the man that you get in to try and salvage things in in Sam Allardyce, it felt like the project completely transformed within the space of a few months. Yeah, that's what I was getting at when I
3: said about spiraling out of control. Well, I think I think there is a uh, a strategic decision about whether you're prepared to commit to a project, you know, in the long term, and not change your manager and just say, look, this is a, this is a four to five you know year project. It's going to take some time. If we have to take spend a season in the in the championship, we'll spend a season in the championship and then we'll come back up. Or well, there's another approach, which is, you know, the project is important. We want to make long-term hires. We want to have a long-term manager. You know, nothing is, you know, it's much, much better running a football club, you know, where you've got a manager that everybody loves and is doing well and there's no there's no threat of him leaving. And, you know, we had that with Marcelo for for uh, for, for three years. Or you make a decision that the premier league status is is absolutely critical to the future of the club and we need to protect it at all costs and if it seems like the long term project is going to be uh, is is going to result in you losing your premier league status then you make another you have to make another decision and i think with the with the ownership position we're in with the 49ers you know knowing that they were they were coming in and the and, and the funding that they were going to to bring you know keeping premier league status was was of real importance and knowing how difficult to get out of the championship and, and I think you know the board made the decision that that we had to make a change, and I think also there was by that stage there was it was a bit easier because uh, there was probably the belief in the club that that despite jesse being you know being a, being a great guy, he probably wasn 't the right long term solution there it was a bit it was significantly harder when we made the decision on Marcelo because we felt that you know he we, we could still have a long term project around him, but we also felt that it was going to be you know compromised by a year in the championship. And then, you know, there's there's no hiding from the fact that when you come to the appointment of Sam Allardyce, that is uh, you know, that's nothing to do with the project at all. That's one final roll of the dice and getting someone in who's prepared to come in. And uh because when you get to that stage, and I think, you know, that's where Jesse has to take some credit, you know, he 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 had a, a very good managerial track record and yet he was prepared to join Leeds in a situation where they were in significant jeopardy and it could have been a real black mark on his on his career to, you know, to get us relegated. So the the, the closer you come to the to the end of the season, you know your market shrinks in terms of the the caliber of people who prepare to take to take the role.
2: It was also by far the biggest job Jesse Marsh had have, ever been offered, though. As well, you, I, I know he'd been successful elsewhere and was, I suppose, you would say on an upward traje- trajectory until he got to the Bundesliga. But I mean, it was it was it was a, it was a very good job for him to take at that time.
3: No, and, that, and, and I, mean, I think that's that's the reason that he, you know, that is that is part of the reason that he, he took it, and it was, you know, it was based on Victor's belief that he was going to be one of the. The highest performing coaches of the next of the next three to four years, but certainly the fact that he wasn't already that played into the
2: fact that he was willing to take the job. Do you think, on reflection, it would have been better to just go for Allardyce at the point of getting rid of Marsh?
3: I think Sam would have probably been because he is the uh, you know the 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 ultimate pragmatist. I think he would have probably had it given us a better chance at that stage. But again, that's that's in hindsight. So, uh, just on Javi Gracia, how, how do we go from?
1: 21st of February, I think it was. He was he was appointed within two months. He's lost the dressing room um, when he went at the the back end of April as the the Bournemouth game, wasn't it? You know, what does that
3: say about the the recruitment of him as a manager? Well, I mean, I think it, you know one of the things that I think I've seen repeatedly with uh, with Leeds United, uh, and it, and it fed right back into I think you know one of the themes of what we're talking about today should be the lessons that we learned and and how that's that's informed the the Daniel Falk appointment. And you know, one of the things is is you know Leeds. United just breaks managers. It's a really really hard place to come and manage. You need to be a a really special person to, you know, to take it. And I think you know, as well as the kind of tactical complexities of the Premier League, I think one of the things that Jesse found challenging and would admit to found challenging was it's just a massive club to manage. You know, you're living in a city where everybody is obsessed with with the results. You know, you can't go anywhere or do anything. You know, the media are all over you there's pressure on the players. Ellen Road's a really, really difficult place to play when, you're, when, when things are not going well. And um, ultimately, you need, you need managers who've got, who've got broad enough shoulders to take that. And, uh, and you know, when I, uh, I think again, in a previous interview, and again, again, I think I was taken out of context, but I talked about Marcelo being bigger than the club. I you mean, know, it's a good thing. You know, in his mind, you know, he wasn't going to compromise his principles for what the press were saying or what the fans were saying or wasn't, you know, he was prepared to sit through games at Ellen Road where we're playing it across the back four and looking like we're going to lose it, and all the crowd of you know gasping in you know all the way through, and he's got the commitment to say you know we're going to, we're going to play through this, and I think um, I think lots of lots of managers and players get caught out with you know not caught out but they get they get exposed by by the scale of the club that they're uh, that you know that they're joining, and I think I think that's something that uh, um, I think both Jesse found and 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 Haffey found that when it's not going very well, you know Leeds is a really really tough place to be to be a manager. Winning games helps, though, doesn't it? So if you put managers in who can win games, that will help everybody. I mean, managers who win games is you know that's that's the solution to everything. So I I can't disagree with you. you on that. You should try doing that more often. Uh, yeah. I, that is, is on the list, and you know, and but but I mean that and that feeds in exactly into 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 Daniel Fark. You know, Daniel Fark is a manager who is who is proven at this level, who is supremely confident at this level, who came in in his interview and didn't really talk about the championship at all. Talked about how he thinks he deserves a Premier League opportunity and how Leeds United is the is the perfect vehicle to prove himself in in the Premier League. You know he's got the ability to go into a dressing room after we um you know have drawn our first three games at home and three matches that we probably should have won, and sit down to the team and say to them, "I had less points at this point the last time I won this league, and I ended up with 102 points. So don't worry, guys, we're going to be fine." And the dressing room relaxes and everyone feels feels good about it. He's got the you know the credibility to go and speak to the to the, speak to the fan base and give them the confidence that he's got this, and you know he feels like a. He feels like a man who has has got the situation, and we have been through a really, you know, I'm sure we'll come to it, but we, we've been through a really challenging uh, transfer window where lots of managers would have, they you know, would have lost their shit repeatedly. He has been so calm, so collaborative, so focused, and so confident in in that he's leading us in the right direction. I think it's exactly what you know, it's exactly what a club the size of Leeds United needs. We can get into that if you like um, the transfer window, but I think
1: we have probably got to start with. Recruitment and and the clauses and and the job that Victor Otter has done as well, and I know you you work closely with Victor Orta, so you might not necessarily want to chuck him under the bus. But there's a lot of Leeds fans feel like doing so. Really, really unhappy with the recruitment. Do you accept that sort of overall, by and
3: large, it's just not been good enough? I think it 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 you know it fits into into two phases. I think you know the recruitment around Marcelo and the season that we went up and the season we finished, we finished um, ninth was you know was great. I think we found some some great players. I think even even in the team that we've got at the moment. You know, we've got Willy Nonto that we paid next to nothing for. We've got Ilan Melier that we paid next to nothing for. We've got Somerville that we paid next to nothing for and Pascal Stroit that we paid next to nothing for, all of whom are, you know, £20 million players and we received offers, you know, of, the, of that level. So I think, you know, like most clubs, it has been a mixed bag. But I think in the last window, everybody would hold their hands up and, you know, we, we look at these things, you know, collectively. It's, you know, managers, managers are involved, board are involved. Victors involved, the scouts are involved, the medical team are involved. It very clearly, it clearly didn't work, and it wasn't good enough. And that's, you know, that's one of the problems that we're we're you know we're faced with in this window. I know the the uh, the exit clauses are frustrated people, but the reality is, if the players had performed in line with their expectation and and in line with the values that we'd uh, we'd have paid for them, well, two things would happen: one, we probably wouldn't have gone down, and two they'd have been sold for their exit clauses in the same way that Tyler Adams was because he retained his value because he had a reasonably good season. And uh, the fact that the others aren't reaching the value of their exit clauses show that that's, that season hasn't worked. And I think when I look at it strategically, I think it it is, you know, it is probably, the mistake was probably trying to find players who had the potential to be eight out of tens or nine out of tens, but maybe were too high risk. And perhaps we should have had a strategy and I think we should have had a strategy where we were hiring six to sevens out of tens that keep you up, which is something that, you know, um, you know, maybe a team like Crystal Palace do, who perhaps are are being more pragmatic about what their ambitions are, and have therefore retained their Premier League status for ten years because they've they've recruited along those lines. There's always the sense of like Victor's broken toys is a phrase I've I've often
1: used on the on the show before. It always felt like that would, they were going for the, the sort of moonshot signings. Why not just do the obvious thing? Sometimes it was something that that Fandon I know we did on the show plead for it over and over again.
3: Well, and and again, I mean, there was and a lot of those occasions, I think, you know, it worked and there've been some successes there, but there've also been, there've also been some failures. And I think in, in a window that we, you know, or in a window that we lost Rafinha and Calvin, who were sort of so critical to securing results in that, in that season, the signings that we made, uh, you know, didn't, didn't compensate for them. And, and, you know, I think we could have made in retrospect, we could have made perhaps more pragmatic signings, which didn't have, you know, didn't have the upside. But again, you know, the the key thing for me is that we, uh, we learn from that and, you know, we've taken that forward into this transfer window, where I'd like to think that supporters would see there's been, um, you know, been a different approach, and there has been a more a more pragmatic, perhaps obvious, more obvious approach to the signings, but you know, perhaps a clearer strategy and and, and hopefully one which will will deliver.
2: To go back to the interview last summer, there was talk about because obviously Rafinha had just left, saying how this was actually a good thing from a Leeds point of view because players see Leeds United as a stepping stone and a way to almost as a way to move on to other clubs. And I know there's a a slightly grim acceptance of that amongst the fan base, even that, you know, you get someone who does well. But it seems like when it doesn't work, clearly you have the thing now of players who we've had nothing from uh, who just now want out anyway, is is what we've essentially been left with this summer. And I know there was, in in the past, there's been talk about assessing the, I guess, the values of players on on like a personal level and getting the right fit personality-wise and stuff it feels like that's broken down catastrophically as well, because as soon as we came down, there were clearly a number of them who had absolutely no interest in staying in the Championship and had, had moves lined up for a period of time, which presumably were being lined up as we were getting relegated from the Premier League. So that that as a as a whole, I feel, has just not worked at all. The, the idea of being a stepping stone has maybe led to the idea that people think, well, it's a temporary thing. It's a temporary thing is League United. One way or another, I'm out of here soon.
3: So I think you're I think you're right in terms of the what the players the, the players desire to leave. And I can I can talk about that. I'm not sure you're right in terms of the reason why that's caused. I think you know what I've what I've seen is and and I kind of believe the players when 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 I've spoken to them, the vehemence and uh, that they don't want to play in the championship has absolutely surprised me. And I don't think it's a Leeds United thing. I think it is a is a broader football thing. It's about the profile of the Premier League. It's about the money paid in the Premier League particularly for international players it's about how they feel about the championship and if you look at tier 2 leagues across Europe uh, they're universally rubbish I mean I think the championship is the fifth biggest league in Europe after the Bundesliga and Serie A and and, uh, and Liga and so I think you know as a as, as somebody's grown up here I think the championships are fan, you know I don't want to be in it I prefer to be in the Premier League but I think it's a fantastic league and I think it's you know it's better than you know it would be better than playing in Liga in 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 France what we've seen is that players have Absolutely no desire to play in it, and we thought we would have uh, more of an ability to convince them, more of an ability to to convince them that this was a great project, and that you know playing in the championship and and tearing it up for a season uh, would be good for them, would be good for their careers, wouldn't harm their international careers. And uh, I have to say, you know, I, I kind of feel that like I've been you know maybe naive about it, but um, it's been just brutally disappointing at how we've seen players want to crawl over broken glass to leave our club. You know it's uh, you know because I uh, you know you guys know I mean I love I love the club and I know we've you know we've had a bad year but I thought there would be for a number of these players there'd be a, you know a bigger emotional bond and there'd be a desire to sort of put right bad seasons that they had last year but I don't think that's necessarily to do with you know how Leeds United is positioned for them and I don't think you know any of the players saw Leeds United as a stepping stone to go and play for and Gladbach or Union Berlin or you know I think it is just a function of of how they perceive the championship, and actually, if you look at um, if you look at our the two teams that went down, you know, Southampton and Leicester, there is almost an identical picture of the number of players who've left and the number of players who they brought in. So I think you know we've all brought about nine or ten players in, and about ten to thirteen players have, have left each of those clubs. So I think it's more of a of a, a you know of an issue of. People's lack of desire to play in the championship, and I and I have to, you know, I would confess, we definitely underestimated the uh, the strength of that feeling.
2: But I think people do look at Leicester and Southampton, look at some of the fees coming into those clubs, and it's a very different picture to to the one we have had, which is just people leaving on loan. And, and I, low know,
3: I think if you look, you know, if if you look at that, particularly particularly for Leicester, it's around the fact that their players have been in the league for longer, and so you know, I think people have been able to forgive Madison. I know they didn't get a fee for Tielemans, but you know, Madison, Tielemans, and Barnes, they've been able to forgive them, you know, one bad season or one below average season because they've had four or five seasons, good seasons in the Premier League before that, where they've proven they've proven their class. So, you know, they definitely deserve to to, to generate the fees. Now, we could have had a very similar picture at Leeds United. So we had the offer, we accepted the offer for 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 Tyler. We could have accepted an offer well in advance of that for, for Willie, significantly in advance, significantly in advance of that. We could have taken an offer for Ilan, which would have been in the mid twenties, an offer for Sinistera, which would have been at twenty, an offer for Pascal Strike, which would have been uh, low teens. So, if we'd have been in a position where we'd have needed to to cash in, we could have done. Equally, we could have taken offers on some of the players who left on loans, but we didn't take those offers because we wanted to not crystallise the the PNS loss of them being sold below their book value and so have instead taken the salary saving and the salary saving we made across this season because of the loans and because of the outs is is 40 million pounds and that 40 million pounds has been directly reinvested into salaries of the new players and transfer fees of the new players so we could have had a much more financially kind of productive window <coughs> if, if we'd wanted to but we didn't want to because we wanted to retain um, we wanted to retain those players that, that we talked about and we think uh, will be will be key to us being successful
4: small details are big surfaces
0: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
1: Just looking at the difference between Leicester and Southampton and the approach that we've ended up taking, and you say the differences in, in the plays that they've been able to move on for big fees because they've been in the league for longer was the risk discussed of buying players who didn't have a track record in this country? Because you put them on inflated Premier League
3: wages, and then when you get relegated, it means they're bloody hard to shift. Basically, I mean, all of this—the whole premise is that is that these players are you know are going to be able to deliver at the level. And although you know there were some risks in there, these players weren't out of nowhere. You know, most of them are you know most of them are, are seasoned you know are seasoned internationals. Most of them were playing you know have played at a reasonable a reasonable level before. So when you look at Lorente Cock. Tyler, uh, uh, Brent, Brendan, they are players that when we signed them, no one was saying they're hell Marys. They were saying, okay, they look like, you know, they're not solid proven Premier League players, but they are players who we would all think would have the ability to, to, you know, to contribute. And because four or five of those players didn't in the way we wanted, I think, you know, we were we were not helped by, you know, we we're not helped by injuries. I think Tyler was the best player, you know, was the best player. And if he'd have played all season, I think we'd have be been in a better position. I think if Rodrigo hadn't been injured at Accrington, you know, he was he was scoring... At a rate, I think second only to uh, to Harland in terms of minutes per games, and you know those are small. Those are small things, small, small uh, the small margins which which caused us not to be successful.
2: To go back to a few of the specific examples of players who've left, I look at Harrison and Verber, both of who've signed contracts in this year and have then been allowed to leave on loan. Now, I know you can say you've been kind of shocked that players are not willing to stay around, but you can't really be shocked by it when. People are inserting loan exit clauses yeah. into contracts, surely, because that's what did, you, of,
3: what did you expect
1: would happen? Because is the that, question, is, yeah. that
2: is clearly their agents or the players going. Well, I need a way out of this, and I don't because I don't see myself as playing in that league.
3: Well, they all want the way out because they don't want to take the, the salary cut. So we have a choice when we structure someone's contract about whether we wanted to have a salary cut or not. And the salary reductions that we had were somewhere between forty and sixty percent. So they're very aggressive. They're some of the most aggressive in the Premier League, and that was done because we wanted to run the club prudently because we knew we couldn't carry the weight of a Premier League wage bill in the Championship because we didn't have the, you know, the, the funding for it. It's because we were still new to the league and so the, 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 the prospect of, of going down was still you know fairly realistic. So I think, I imagine when Leicester are signing players, they don't have to have relegation clauses in because no one thought Leicester were going to get relegated. Even Southampton, who'd been in the league for 10 years, you know, probably didn't have to have those, those measures. But we did because the owners couldn't, um, Andrea couldn't fund um, a Premier League wage bill in, in, in the league below. But just because they put those clauses in, I mean there's there's two things. One is that we we thought that in a lot of cases they would they would trigger their release clause, which is a which is a transfer fee, because you'd like to think that the majority of players at least retained their value. And in the case of the ones we recruited, they didn't. And many of them were significantly below their value. And then the second one is, you know, when it comes to the loan, there is a conversation to be had. And obviously they want the protection of the loan. They don't know what the ownership pitch is going to be, they don't know who you're going to hire as a manager, they're not they don't know whether you're going to invest in the squad we thought at that point and for, for some of them it's it's worked the position of the 49ers taking over hiring the most successful um, manager in recent years evidencing that we were going to reinvest in the squad evidencing that we were going to be aggressive in in keeping players that we could keep like like Somerville um, and Willie, showing that we were you know going out going to go out and, and buy a top championship center forward where that was going to be Cameron Archer or or, or Joel Perot. We thought that those things, you know, would uh, would have would have influenced people, and and uh, particularly when you looked at the loan options that were were available to them. And from my perspective, you know, going on loan to to Everton in the in the predicament that Everton are in versus staying and having another season at Leeds and getting them promoted, I think there's a there's a valid a valid choice for a player to for a player to make there. And uh, and as I said, I think we were just, you know we we were surprised, but the reality is is at the time to secure Jack Harrison on a new contract to ensure that he took the wage reduction if we went down. Those are the types of things were in place. If we'd have had the 49ers um as sole owners at that point, would we have had to be aggressive in as aggressive in the wage cuts? I don't think we would have done, because I think they'd have had you know they'd have had the funding to be able to uh, you know to cushion the blow into the championship.
2: I suppose to flip it around though, and if you were if you're on the buying side, you can completely see why if there is a loan and a buy clause there, you take the loan because the, there's no risk there for you. You know, if you're look if you're looking at getting someone getting Harrison on loan for a year or Sinistera, you can think, well there's not a huge financial commitment here. We don't have to book a massive value against this.
1: Get injured, we send them
2: back. Exactly. It, it feels like it, in offering a loan and a buyout, it's only in very rare number of cases of obvious, extreme, proven talent that someone is going to take the it's buyout. The, it's
1: the path of least resistance, isn't it?
2: Exactly, because you can you can take an an almost risk free gamble on someone like Jack Harrison, because you can say, well, oh, if all we're doing is covering his wages for a year, absolutely, well, and,
3: and that I mean that's why the players want them. So, you know, you go into that knowing that, but what what ultimately you're expecting is ultimately players would prefer to go on permanence. They don't want to go, I and mean, the players who've gone on loan are in difficult position. They're in a difficult position now in terms of where they are, where the team goes up, whether the team goes down, where they want them permanently, the fact they've got to move back. I think, that, you know, the difference was was that uh, the players had performed so below their expectations. They were just so far from getting permanent offers. But, you know, out of the players that we've, that, that we've lost, you know, and, and I think Daniel would agree with this, the majority aren't regretted losses for the project that we want going forward. Some of them are, and we'd have loved to have kept Jack Harrison. And, and you know, Jack Harrison was, uh, you know, a number of players were were made offers which would have closed the financial gap for them between where they were and where they are now. And um, um, they still decided they just wanted to be in the Premier League. And, and at some point, and this is where we got to with, uh, with with Sinistera, you have to make a decision around if a player wants to is to go to such extremes to leave the club, how much do you want him? I mean, one thing we do know about Leeds United we've learned over the last six years is, you know, Leeds United can't carry passengers. Supporters won't let it carry passengers. Daniel Farker won't let it carry passengers. And we had to make a decision around, you know, we can, we can try really, really hard to keep somebody. But at some point you have to say, if the player doesn't want to be here that much, then perhaps they're not, you know, they're perhaps they're not right for this project.
1: Just on the loan clauses, Daniel Farker himself has spoken out against them and the, the lack of control it's given us in the market. He's, did he say they were like, he can't think of another club in Western Europe that's done, done the same sort of thing. Fans have been very, very put out by them as a concept. Are they wrong to
3: think that? Well, I think um, if I look at where we've ended up, I think we've probably lost two to three players that we wouldn't have wanted to lose. We've saved £40 million pounds in wages and we brought nine players in, ten players in who really, really want to be here. Really want to play for Leeds United, and I don't think are a particular a a significant downgrade in any of those things. I've spoken to Daniel at length of this. I know he's frustrated about it. I'm frustrated about it. Him, it created. I mean, he knew about it when we came into it, so he he had full visibility of it. But of course, it's frustrating right till the last moment. We have a player like Luis who who you know we want to keep, but ultimately Luis was going to was prepared to do anything to leave, and then we had to accept that. And what we needed to make sure was that we brought in a player who really wanted to be here, and we think you know is a is a you know. Can be at least an adequate replacement, and if you take his availability into account, potentially a better replacement. Um, but but I you know I can totally understand the frustration. But I think the you know the the alternative would have been we'd have been forced into selling players below their book value um, who absolutely desperately wanted to get away. So we have an element of control in terms of you know from a PNS perspective. But you know I, I fully understand the fans' frustrations. frustrations, and no one's been more frustrated than me about this.
1: Do you, do you take responsibility for those clauses? So
3: well I mean it's a, they're a board decision they're done based on the financial reality of the club so you know we had a position of do we sign players that are unwilling to accept a, a reduction in their relegation in in, in their in, in, a, in a, their championship salary and if they are what type of, what type of position does that put us in if we go down and you're ending up paying you're ending up paying Diego Lorente six million pounds a year but it's linked into it's linked into the broader you know the, the macro funding of the club and, and the position that you're in if you're if you're if you're relegated. Because um, Parag did a, a thing on the official
1: podcast with with Matt Lewis, in which he said he negotiates contracts in his sleep. And I think fans would probably benefit from knowing whether the 49ers Enterprises Group have had any input into contracts up to this point, because it's it's a grey area. People are not sure. And you stack up what's happened with the contracts and the loan clauses with Parag saying that a bit of clarity, I suppose, would uh, would yeah, go a I mean, long way. Around I mean,
3: this. the uh, the you know the key driver behind behind you know player negotiations was you know it was definitely the majority shareholder but the 49ers absolutely had had visibility um, you know about it and they you know they're frustrated as well but we're we're entering to a, into a position where we have a different a different funding structure now and you know those loan clauses wouldn't have been so important if the 49ers had full ownership would you have preferred to keep um, Adams and Sinistera um no on what basis on their desire to leave okay
1: and and how, how vehement were they then that they had to leave, and to what
3: extent, to what extremes have they gone then? Because you've you've sort of I mean hinted towards that. So I respect all players' desire to play at the highest level. They have short careers, and they have you know they should have the opportunity, should they want to, to play at the highest level. And you know to be fair to them, when they bought into the Leeds United project, you know one of our sales. You know, one of the things that we sell to players is, you know, you're you're joining a Premier League team who is on a trajectory where we're going to grow into the Premier League and you know we're going to be consistent Premier League performers. They didn't want to join it, you know, they didn't join the championship side. However, I think there are ways that you can handle your desire to play at the highest level. And from a personal perspective, I don't think either of those two players handle it particularly well. Um in what way? Can you expand on that or um in um I just think there are I think you can um you can voice your desire to leave. I think the first thing is you need to be, you know, you need to be professional in the interim is the first thing. Um, you know, you need to remember who who you're contracted to and and, and the value of that, you know, the value of that contract. And uh I think you need to use um you know, you need to approach that through through discussion and trying to get to mutual agreement rather than the avenues that they pursued. Can you expand on what they were or is that is that too much. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it. I don't think it's particularly particularly helpful to expand on, on what they're. And as I said, you know, I, I kind of ultimately I have to respect their decisions. But there's, I don't think it's the. Uh, I don't think it's a way to behave to a club that's uh, that's that's really looked after you and as as and continues to look after you and, and was offering you, I think, fantastic alternatives to uh, to remain at the club. Um, so we, we're looking at new contracts, incentives, so on and so forth, to try and make people stay. Yeah, right. and uh, and but I think you know in the end, I think there are players who who had the discussions and and did the right things and did them in a timely manner. And then I think there were players who were you know perhaps led by their agents to employ tactics which um, will um, mean they're not on our Christmas card lists. Mm.
2: With Sinistera, then, because obviously he is he is our player. He's due back next summer. And you said we received offers for him. Why did it go late in the window then? If presumably this wasn't something he thought of, you know, two days before the window was was going to close that he'd like to leave. Why did it go as late as that? And why was he not sold as opposed to just going out on loan? It's,
3: it's purely it's sold purely because we didn't we didn't uh, we couldn't get to the value that uh, we believed he's he's worth. And I think that's you know for for his perspective that was simply because he just hasn't played enough games. Um, I think I think he's a player that is worth more than we more than we paid for him. And I think ultimately. Uh, you know, he'll be a player that we will sell, you know, above his book value or above the amount we paid for him, you know, in time. If if the decision is to sell him, the nature of the timing of his departure was purely down to um, our position that we were refusing to let him go until we could find a uh, in, until we could find a replacement. Mm-hmm. And Jade and Anthony had been on our target list from um, right at the start of the window as a winger that we wanted. If we if any of our wingers were to were to leave, and we presumed that you know maybe one of Jack or uh, or Willie or or. Um, or Luis would leave, but he seemed to be a central part of Bournemouth's plans, and therefore wasn't available, and, and we'd, we'd kind of given up on him, uh, and we'd given up on another other, other targets. You, you, know, you know, we were uh, in had lengthy discussions with uh, Paintlet Gank, um, which didn't come to fruition either, and then it all came together in the, in the last day, and uh, we ended up in a position where we were able to let him go because we were swapping a player who um, in Jaden who who really wanted to be here, and I think. Was excited about about joining Leeds and and, and and being at the the heart of something really uh, really successful, and uh, we lost a player who who didn't want to be here at all. Was your position
1: watertight on Adams' sinisterity? Feel because we've seen the difference with what's happened with Willy Nonto, which is you've made him stay effectively and uh, obey the terms of his contract, and rightly so.
3: Um, there was, you know, the the the, the avenues that uh, that Tyler and uh, Lewis were exploring had some risk to the club. We were we were fairly solid in our in our uh, in in our position, but ultimately it was a combination of of the legal position and their desire to leave. Whereas I think the you know unfairly on Willie, that's been the one that has been sort of blown out of proportion because ultimately I think Willie had a uh, had a wobble around an offer that was received and. Um, uh you know, probably took some bad advice from his uh from from his from, from his advisors briefly and then it was uh and then it was res- resolved you know very very quickly and i think you know we see from willies performances he's he's pleased to be here and he's committed and i think have, he'll have a, he'll have a great season did you achieve everything you set out to in the window do you feel was it aggressive i, I think um I think the problem with the, with the term, I remember when, we, when Prague said aggressive and you, you said you know, it's, open to it, it's open to interpretation. I think it was ingre- aggressive. One of the things which is, is, is difficult in the championship, it's actually really difficult to spend any money because the caliber of players that uh, you may want to sign who are above the 10 million, I don't think there's many transfers in the, in the championship which are more than 10 million pounds. I think there may be one or two, but I think the majority are way under 5 million. So the fact that we've got a number in above 5 million puts us you know, well at the top of the spenders, both kind of, in you know, collectively and, and, and individually. So I think, whereas you're in the Premier League, you can, if you're saying you're going to be aggressive, you can go buy a £50 million player. The reality is, is that, you know, when you look at players that I think we're on our target list and we, we would be open about it and, and, and we'd have liked to sign. So you take someone like Gustavo Hamer at Coventry or Jacarese at Coventry or, at Coventry or uh, Cameron Archer at Aston Villa. Um, who were players that we thought would be on the cusp of joining a lower-level Premier League team or or, or, or a, good, a good Championship side? I think we were very confident that we and we were confident, and I think we were proved right in our ability to fight off Leicester or Southampton. So I don't think Leicester or Southampton have signed anybody that that you know ahead of ahead of us in terms of who we wanted. But where we have lost out is to is to Premier League sides, and it's depressing to you know with, with the greatest respect to Bournemouth, it's depressing to lose players to Bournemouth or to Sheffield United. But, you know, that type of play, take someone like Cameron Archer, you know, he has already had one, you know, he's had, he's had a championship loan, doesn't want to go again, wants a permanent home, we've had to offer him a permanent home, but would prefer to be in the Premier League. And you can make the case that you think that we, th- I think that, you know, Leeds United probably have more chance to be in the Premier League, over, you know, more regularly over the next five years than Sheffield United do. But the fact we're not there at the moment is, is, is a problem for those players so I think um we we're as aggressive as we could be because the players so I think Jokeres went for 20 and and Cameron Archer went for 17 and Hamer went for 14 but those are those are players who just aren't simply available to championship clubs so right. I think you know we've been aggressive on loans I think we've we've used the the loan market well and uh, I think um, with the with the quality that we've signed in terms of how much we've spent you've been about as aggressive as we can be. Is there um, a profit and sustainability
1: pressure at all? Because that's one of the, the things that's one of those rumors that just keeps swirling around. Obviously, there's an imperative you have to abide by, it, and it is a lot tighter in the EFL than it is in the Premier League.
3: Are we under any direct pressure to, to make the numbers add up? Yes. And, um, every club that comes down is under pressure. I fail to see how they, how they can't be. When I went to the EFL um, conference at the start of the season, pretty much the first thing that the um, chairman said, was that the problem with of competitiveness in the EFL is that out of the teams that go up two will have parachute payments and one won't and that's that's the standard position so he said effectively there's six teams normally who have got parachute payments in the league so he's you know he's effectively sort of saying you know you've got you've got a, a one in 18 chance of getting of getting promoted and that's and that's wrong and so the PNS rules or the FFP rules in, in the championship are deliberately designed to squeeze the teams who've come down with parachute payments to make sure they can't, spe- you know, can't pay their way out. And I think with the independent regulator on, on the horizon. And, I know you're a fan. Um, yeah, more power to the Conservative government. I think, or it, and what can go wrong? Um, that will be clipped and taken out of context. By, by the, way. the way, that's the thing. When people shout at me in the street, Tory twat, I think we can have a healthy debate about twat. But I'm not a Tory. <laughs> um, but um, I think there will be increasing pressure to uh, level the competitive playing field in the in the championship to make it harder for the teams that get relegated. You know, they've talked about uh, killing parachute payments in, in their entirety. So definitely, that sort of vice of PNS is one that we have to be uh, we have to be very mindful of. Um, fortunately, Leeds in the championship has remarkable revenues. So, so you know, even our revenues without pay, parachute payments were were were, were sixty million. You know, whereas I sort of think you know many teams in the Championship only have revenues of fifteen, so we have a competitive advantage that we need to take advantage that we need to we need to capitalise on. We have the advantage of of our parachute payments, but ultimately, if we were to re- remain in the in the Premier League, uh, sorry, in the Championship for for more than one season, we'd have to make outbound transfers to stay within the in the P and uh, limits. And in the sort of medium term, I know we don't want to do
1: that lazy thing of looking ahead and you know running before we can walk and all that, but it is the the financial status of the club now stronger than it was under the previous ownership because I think people are, are seeing the sort of this, this squeeze in the EFL and wondering about the new ownership um, and it being this sort of nebulous venture capital backed operation people automatically assume venture capital equals asset stripping dividends, profits things
3: like that can you just give us a little bit of clarity on, on what the ownership looks like? Yeah I mean there's, there's not any requirement for the club to throw off cash to the owners in the short, medium or even long term i think the ownership understand that certainly in the championship but even in the premier league that's not the way to run a model the 49ers vision is to is to invest in the uh, in the infrastructure so that's the stadium that's the training ground that's the quality of the team and the facilities around it to grow the enterprise value year on year rather than throw off cash and uh, what we do have is um, you know we now have an ownership group with uh, with deeper pockets and and a better ability to fund us and I think that will uh, evidence itself in the ability to uh, to kickstart the stadium project, so that when we do get back promoted, you know everything is in place to to, to move that forward more quickly. And I think when we get to the Premier, back to the Premier League, it will evidence itself in our ability to uh, uh, to be more aggressive both in terms of the wage bill and the transfer fees. However, it is more challenging to be financially aggressive in the in the Championship because because the rules are there and you, and, and 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 they're tight. Right, the-
2: on the basis that Premier League teams don't make profit, even though there is there is a huge amount of money sloshing around. What you're talking about then from an ownership point of view is essentially them growing their asset to a point where five years, 10 years down the line, they think it's worth a billion pounds, two billion pounds, three billion pounds, something like that. And that's where, that's where they see the money in it, I guess, as opposed to what you, you may term like the Bates model, which is to take a bit, here and there, yeah. I, I don't think there's any interest in that from, from from the core of the ownership or any
3: of the or any of the, the investors around it. Is it's about driving asset value, and I think you know the reason why you see such um, uh, American interest in UK sports is that they look at the um, so Stan Kroenke. When I was worked at Arsenal, you know Stan Kroenke. When I, early on, he bought just 10. percent I think Stan owns the the full suite of um, American sports franchises. So he's got the Rapids, the Avalanche, the Rams, the Nuggets. And you know, he said when he went around the world, despite him being, you know, one of the most sort of storied franchise owners in American sport, all everybody wanted to talk to him about was his ten percent stake, you know, shareholding in Arsenal. And he was able to buy the entirety of Arsenal for, I think, you know, less than he'd spent on his NBA team. So they see the, I think they see the ability for 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 franchises, as they would call them, we would call them clubs, to be worth, you know, multiples of what they're worth now. And I think also, you know, I've always thought, and it was one of the reasons I, you know, I. You know, I came to I came to the club was, you know, Leeds truly has the potential. I think it's the most, I still think it's the most investable club in probably in, in European football, um, because it's playing in the right league. If you're going to invest in a club, you really want it to be in the Premier League, but you need to give it some inherent competitive strengths. And we have that because we have the brand, uh, we have the city, we have one club in the city, you know, whatever it is, the third or fourth biggest city in the, in the country, and, and it only has one club, you know, we sell. You know, two hundred and fifty thousand shirts is the same, you know, which we sell in the UK, not internationally. Is the same number as you know Tottenham and Arsenal sell domestically. I mean, it's it's fantastic fan base. Plus, you've got a stadium which is ripe for development, which has the room around it to do it, and a fan base that you know will be able to fill it even if you went up to sixty thousand. So, you know, if you're looking at it purely, uh, um, from a from you know which target should you invest in in English football, I think the 49 of you know, forty have picked the right one. You talk about like increasing asset value because that will make football fans win so they'll go, oh, corporate
1: speak. But what does that look like? What does that translate into a vision for for Leeds fans? Because they're going to say, well, we've heard him say now that their plan is to grow us and then sell us and people don't like that. It's not compatible, uh, Compatible, yeah. is it, with like sporting emotion?
3: Well, it's interesting because the 49ers don't talk about that at all. And I think because they come from a uh, sporting background because it's you know because ultimately it's family-owned and the family-owned the, owned the 49ers, you know, they talk a very similar language to, to, to we do. And, and you know, I have no real interested long-term financial targets of, you know, that's that's not for me. You know, what we talk about internally is we want to make people proud of supporting Leeds United. And the good thing is if we can make people proud of supporting Leeds United and being part of, of Leeds United, then the financial benefits come with it because it means you have to be winning games. It means you have to be doing the right stuff off the pitch. You need to be handling yourself properly. And I think, you know, our biggest disappointment last year there was was that, you know, we'd gone from uh, a period where people really felt, you know, proud to be associated with the club and proud to be part of the club and proud of the city, to one where we won't proud again. And that's that is the simple mission. You know, there are no there are no financial targets for Leeds United this year other than we need to stay within PNS and then we just need to get our get get everybody you know proud to be belonging to our club again. If it goes
1: well, we know it's going to be sort of spades in the ground as soon as possible. Start to develop the ground, which all sounds great. Leeds fans a bit worried because of you know last twenty years and so on. But what if it goes
3: badly? What happens? From a ground development perspective, or, just or, generally. or more generally, yeah. okay, so so more, more generally, I think the thing that I've always felt about about Leeds United, which has always given me confidence, is if Leeds United is well run, at the very minimum, it should be getting promoted from the Championship or being in the playoffs every every season. And it was, it is still, you know, you guys know the history more than better than I do, but it's still a mystery to me that over sixteen years, it just couldn't get itself in that in that position. Because based on its size, based on its commercial revenues, based on the fact it's a, it's a better place to attract people to, better based on the fact of the strength of the academy and the quality of our training ground, we shouldn't be in a position, Leeds United shouldn't be in a position where clubs like Huddersfield and Luton Town and Oldham and all the clubs that have played in the Premier League and, and been promoted out of the championship are getting promoted and Leeds United aren't. So I think you know, the worst case scenario is that um, if we weren't promoted this season, there would need to be a bit of a reset from a PNS perspective. But I still think we should, based on the financials of the club, we should still have a squad which is in the top four in terms of competitiveness in the league. And if you combine that with a good manager, which I think we have, and I think we've got a good manager for for, for the long term. I mean, we've always talked to Daniel about it might take us one, two, or three years to to get up, and he's you know he, he's bought into that. I feel that we've got a team that um, that even in the worst case scenario should be should be challenging to get promoted.
2: Just in, to go back to the recruitment, actually, just because it's a. Uh... Obviously the first season without Victor. How has that changed then and how, how do the new, does the new structure fit anymore and who, who does what exactly within it?
3: So I think what we've, what we've tried to do is um, what, what I think with the... So the director of football role is quite a, quite a new role in football. So I hadn't worked with one at Arsenal or, or West Ham. And it was the first time I'd been exposed to it at, at Leeds United. And I think... Um, and this isn't, this isn't a, a comment about Victor at all but I think for anybody doing that role the breadth of skills that, that you need... To deliver it properly are really challenging because you have to do recruitment. So you have to have an eye for a player. You have to be able to understand data. You have to be understand scouting reports. You have to you know you have to have a feel for whether a player can develop at the right level, how they're going to transition, and that normally involves that you've you know been in the game or been involved in the game at some at some reasonably you know good level. You then have to you have to head up um, player trading and player and player negotiations, which is a completely different skill set. It's a skill set which is about Financials and being persuasive and understanding contracts and understanding terms and being able to uh, contractual terms and being able to benchmark, getting the best financial offer, which is you know not necessarily a skill set which sits with someone who's really good at spotting who a you know great left winger is. Alongside that, you then have the whole operational piece and the whole football operation. So if you go up to Thorpe Arch and there's 120 people reporting there, we've got a school which is teaching academy kids, we've got we've got homes where kids are staying and you know in in, in sort of with with um. Uh, uh, it's not foster parents, but the equivalent of foster parents—local no, families, digs, local families—they're yeah. in digs. Yeah. You know all the child protection issues around that. We've got, we've got the you know the grounds, the facilities, the electricity, the security, the food, the nutrition—that big operational piece—and then you've got this piece around football administration, which is around structuring the contracts properly, making sure that they're UEFA approved and FIFA approved and FA approved and EFL approved. And there's just a massive breadth of, uh, of, of skills that are required to do those jobs. So in, in the restructure that we've done uh, this summer, you know, we've brought Greta in on the, on the, on the technical and recruitment front. Uh, we had Nick Hammond uh, from a negotiation and, and, and player trading perspective. Uh, we had Adam Underwood who has run um, you know, one of the most successful academies in, in the country for, for, for many years and stepping up and he still has academy responsibility to be he now heads up football operations and, and how Thorpe, Thorpe operates and the facilities and player care. The log- team logistics and data analytics all sit within that, and then we have uh, Hannah Cox, who's been uh, here for eleven or twelve years. You know, as head of football administration, to to kind of run the contractual side and the process side of things. So I think we have, um, you know, again in the in the in the spirit of of kind of moving forward and, and kind of learning lessons, we've you know we have created a, a broader team with more specialist skill sets, and uh, and I think it's worked very well across this. Uh, it's worked very well across this window.
1: Was Victor a single point of failure then? Just to look at the counterpoint of what you described there, and and uh, when I say single point of failure, I don't mean he was necessarily an out and out failure. I mean like just in terms of uh, you know
3: how that phrase operates. I mean Victor had a uh, had a huge amount of uh, amount of responsibility, and I think it's you know it, it's not reflective of him. It's just more reflective of how we've seen other other clubs operate. We're actually having a having a flatter, broader structure, probably you know dissipates the risk across across a number of specialists but would you agree that
1: by having Victor in charge of so much that there was in him if it starts to go wrong in one day, but if the recruitment's not quite up to scratch or whatever then that that falls away and then you could find in the sense that, that you know Marsh was his man for example when it came to the manager and he, you know he doubles down when Marsh is potentially going to be sacked so suddenly you've got you got two points there there's the manager there's the recruitment and it's all centering on one one figure you know did he have too
3: much control yeah well i mean we've we've um that's why we looked at other other uh, other structures, other football structures across other clubs, and see how they've done it best. And you know, I think I think if you look at most clubs now, there is not you know there is not one person who is who is running such a sophisticated and complicated department. It's it is spread across more people. So we you know we think that's a better structure.
1: Um, you mentioned before about football clubs being well run, and obviously your own role in this is at the top of the tree as the as the CEO. There are Leeds fans out there who will be
3: disappointed that you're still here. And so, what's your message to them? Well, I think over the, um, it's it's difficult to hide from the disappointment of last season, I and mean, then you can't hide from from taking responsibility of it. I'm the I'm the chief executive. I'm you know responsible for the for the operation of the club. I'm responsible for for, for managing the ownership and and helping guide them in the right direction. And and last season was uh you know was was it was a failure. Um, and it's you know it's hugely disappointing personally because it's uh, it makes for a miserable a miserable year. And uh, you know it's not what we, we we set out to achieve. But I think if you uh if you look at, and you know, it's difficult to, to just then not come up with a list of excuses of why it went wrong. And these aren't excuses because, because there aren't anyway, because we were well-funded enough. We had enough in the transfer market. We had enough choice and time of manager to get all those things right. And we didn't. But I think there is some, there is some context. And for me, the context is that effectively the way the Premier League structured now is there are 12 teams that are going to go down every, could go down every season. There's eight that are probably safe and there's 12 who are going down each of those has pretty much a, a you know, fairly equal chance of going down. So your chances of going down are about 25%. So I think over three to four years, there's a chance that you know, one year the bullet is going to be in, in, in your barrel of the, of the revolver. And so I think you have to plan a club if it's not going to be in the top eight. You have to be able to plan a club to be able to sustain a relegation and for, to take that as, as a course of business because the margins are so fine. If you get one thing wrong, if you get an injury at the wrong time. If a manager doesn't work out, As Southampton have found, I think they've been in the Premier League for ten years. As Leicester have found, who've won the Premier League and won an FA Cup, you know they weren't immune to it. As West Ham have flirted with it, and uh, and Brighton have flirted with it, you need to build a structure which which I think can withstand it. And therefore, one relegation, I don't think, should be viewed as a as a as a kind of as a terminal failure. And when I look at the time that we've, you know, I've been involved in the club, we've had, you know, we've had six years, we've had. You know, the first year we the first year was a year of transition. The second year we were, I think we were in the top two in the in the, we were one of the sec, two top teams in the league, and we failed in the playoffs. But I think it was a it was a fantastic season that everyone enjoyed. We then had a wonderful year of getting promoted off the backdrop of COVID, which is a particularly you know challenging environment. And I think I think that was a season that you know everyone will remember. We then had a wonderful season where we you know where we finished we finished ninth, and then we had a season that was disappointing, um because we we stayed up by you know by one place but actually in the context of teams that have got promoted staying up in you know over two years is you know would be deemed successful so i think you know out of the first 5 years we had one average one of transition we had four relatively successful ones or very successful to relatively successful and we've had one year which was definitely a failure when i look at people in my position you know people at, uh, at norwich or people at fulham who've who've or people at watford who've gone down and come back up i think there's a lot to be said for for continuity and i think um anybody who uh, who actually knows me and, and interacts with me knows i'm I, you know I love the club I've had lots of opportunities to work at other clubs and I, I don't want to work anywhere elsewhere because I love the club I'm at and uh I think I've played a uh, a uh, a valuable role in in helping transition the ownership I think we've got great ownership now uh, not that we didn't before but I think the time was right that we needed to move to a you know to a, a different level of, of funding and uh I'm really excited about uh, about the season I think it's going to be you know it will, it will have some ups and downs it's going to be nerve wracking as it always is but i'm uh, you know, I could be more excited about about working with Daniel and the players we've signed to to make us successful again, and I think uh, you know when we do get promoted, which I I think will uh, will will you know certainly happen over the next should happen over the next two years, um, the foundation that we've built over the last over the last three to four years won't won't be lost because we are you know we have a stadium which is Premier League ready, we have stadium plans to take it to the next level, we have a training ground which is which is which is, which is fixed, we've learnt some lessons in terms of football structure. Um, so I think there's lots to be. Uh, I think it's hard off the backdrop of last season, but I think there's lots lots to be optimistic about. Do you think maybe with hindsight the the program notes didn't help your own cause? Uh, well, that's why I've stopped. Uh, the um, I think the sad the sad thing on the program notes was, I think I made a conscious decision to um, that it would be a good way of rather than them being written. I think every other chief, club chief executive, someone in the in the uh, in the comms office writes them, and they're sort of a generic get behind the get behind the boys type stuff and. What I wanted to do was was uh, use it as a sort of regular platform to hear from the ownership. And I think lots of people, um, uh, you know, appreciated it. I think there were... Um, I tried to put some personality into it and make it a little bit irreverent and maybe give my uh, perspective on on other things in, in the broader football world to make it interesting. And, you know, I got, I got some positive feedback. And I think, you know, when everything's going well, they're seen as irreverent and mildly amusing. And uh, when everything's not going well seen as a Tory twat. <laughs> um, and uh, and I think, you know, what w- we made the decision is in that I, I still, you know, last night I, w- I spent uh, an hour and a half with, with a trust and a, on a Q&A. My door is open to any group of supporters if they want to come in and meet. And I, and I really value the communication, and the feedback. But I think the program notes became a, uh, a kind of lightning rod for supporter discontent. And, 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 and when they do that, they just become
1: counterproductive. Yeah. I think from my point of view, it's because like, for example, around the strikers. Where it was. I think you wrote the, the one about the two international number nines and, and Joffrey being, you know, the best young striking prospect. And it didn't kind of pass the eye test. You know, what, what we ended up seeing on the pitch didn't reflect that. And again, it's always with the aid of hindsight, but people are never forgiving in that regard. It's just that it came across as like you were the smartest people in the room and then further down the line we get relegated. And then people think, well, you're bloody not. The evidence yeah. suggests you're
3: not. And I think that's, that's a sort of tonality thing. Because you know, I, I got a lot of grief about that particular article. And I think you know, what I was actually saying at the time was we were looking for a forward. We knew we needed one. We weren't going to bring in just anybody. And this, 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 um, this sort of feedback you get about, you know why don't you just bring in a forward? Or a left back, for example. Or a left back. That's probably maybe easier to fix. But on the forward one, when you're in the Premier League, there are not many 20-goal a season. You know, there are and they play for Spurs and, 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 and Liverpool. West Ham don't have an out-and-out centre-forward. Brighton, until Evan Ferguson, didn't have an out-and-out centre-forward. So this thing of, you know, the point I was trying to make was, with Rodrigo, who ended up scoring 14 goals in the season that he was half-injured for, which was, you know, well in advance of anybody else, and should have been enough to keep us up. There is a a bit of a duty to be defensive of the players that you've got. And everybody just saying to you, all your forwards are shit. (laughs) Well, they're they're not shit, you know. Patrick is, you know, a Premier League, He scored 17 goals in a Premier League season. There's not many people who've done that. Of course, he has his injury problems. I know it's not everyone's cup of tea. You know, I know Rodrigo was played out of position for a while. We just try to sort of make the point, you know, you have to defend the team at some points and sort of say, I can't pile in on Junior Firpo because you guys don't like him. And he's a professional who turns up every day for training and wants to give his best for Leeds United. So from an ownership and, and ball perspective, these are, you know, these are my colleagues and my employees and I have a you know professional duty to them beyond being you know being a fan, which I know fans won't want to hear. But saying that the young players that we've got coming through aren't good enough is not very constructive. Saying that the forwards we have aren't good enough is not very constructive. But you know, within the context, I was saying we are still looking for somebody, and you know, we will try and get somebody. And I think I don't know that the, the window we bought Willy Nonto in the end, I think it was. But I understand why fans don't like it because they they don't want to hear it. They prefer to sit you know sit with me in a pub. And you know, sit with my you know my seven year old son who you know who's lead's obsessed and tells me exactly what he thinks. So I get the I get the feedback firsthand. I took him to a, a game at, you know Brentford last season and uh, and we got cornered after the game by some supporters and they you know the, the language was you know quite choice for a, for a six year old. And we sort of got back to the car and he was like you know he's like a bit flustered by it all and he just looked at me and said Dad why don't you just buy a left back? <laughs> <laughs> so the feedback you know we get the feedback but I think. When you're speaking from a club perspective, you have to be respectful of all the people who work really hard to try and be the best for Leeds United, even if they're up against it at a, a, you know, at a certain point. And you have to do it in the face of, of the fact that some of the criticism that, they're, that they are receiving is completely disproportionate to how they're contributing. And you have to try and counterbalance that. So, you know, some of the abuse that Patrick Bamford and his family have suffered is completely off the charts of what anybody should... Should have to face in in English football, let alone somebody who's just going, you know, got a slightly bad injury record. So I think you know in the program notes, sometimes you have to defend the decisions of you know the decisions of the club and some of the people in the club, and I understand how that riles people. So um, I, I don't know, you can you can read the Adam Pope column instead now.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, I think it's always from the from the point of view that you know the, the previous 16 years, well, the pre bielsa era, post Premier League, pre bielsa era, it's basically a shit show, and everyone's very very damaged by it and doesn't trust the club and doubts what is being said within the club, doubts the sincerity sincerity of it. Um I think that's the that's the place where it probably originates. From. I think
2: it comes it comes into a bigger picture as well sometimes, I think, of the things not going well on the pitch, it's obviously an element of it, but then you have you have the the programme notes, which some people will take exception to. You have the owner of the club occasionally having a few too many glasses of red wine and <laughs> replying to random fans on an evening and it just had, and generally speaking it was either Came across as arrogant or just unprofessional, and then you have Victor Otter berating people in the West Stand or yelling "No Premier League without me" at people at Brentford. Exactly, and and the whole picture it paints is of almost it's almost the club themselves sometimes div- doing a them and us bit with with the fans, and it's it's like you need to there needs to be an understanding of why of why people are annoyed at Victor Otter and him just yelling back at them doesn't achieve anything. Like I I, I and I can because you're generally in the background on these videos and pictures kind of grimacing. I get the impression your, your opinion is just shut up, Victor. Like just, just take it now. Maybe, maybe their points are not fair, but the West End after a, after a game is not the place to do this. Yeah. I mean, I, th-
3: look, I think there are, uh, and maybe it was a mistake, but you know, at, at the start, I think Leeds had had such poor ownership that we felt there was a need for the ownership to engage directly with the fan base to give them some level of confidence that it was people who cared about it and were, and we're going to try and do the right thing and that was against everything that I'd learned at West Ham and Arsenal, which is basically ownership and, and senior management should be seen and not heard. You know, be at the games and shut up because no one wants no one wants to hear from you. And when it does go well, you won't get any credit. And when it goes badly, you, you know you'll be blamed. So your best just to just out it. But we felt there was a need, and I was you know a very you know reluctant part of the documentary because. You know, I didn't want to be in it. I didn't. I didn't want the profile. But I think Andrea was keen to tell the story and and tell the world that you know we were working really hard to try and make something special happen. And the documentary was, I think, you know, was a sort of successful showcase of, of what we had achieved. But I think you know, going forward, you know, Bar once a year coming in to speak to you guys, Bar meeting fans. And to be honest, what I find is 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 that it's much better to have a dialogue with supporters one on one in small groups. You know. Supporters know I go to most of the games by public transport, so you know they'll see me on tubes on the way in, into London or trains on the way back, you know, to and from Leeds. And those are the discussions which I think are are the most valid because people can understand the context, they can decide whether you're whether there's some integrity behind it, they can see whether you're you know making a joke or or, or being serious. And um and I think you know for us it's the way the way forward, which is we want to uh, we don't want to be we don't want to have a closed door to the supporters, and we have the supporters advisory board now, which. All the guys on the supporters advisory board do a fantastic job. Give us a whole load of time, whole load of commitment, really constructive feedback, and it's a great, uh, it's a great format to uh, to understand where fans are. But I don't think, um, I think you know, more broadly, uh, the less you hear from us, the better, and the more you hear from from you know what's happening on the pitch and and, and from Daniel, I think is is the way forward. Final question, then, and we'll let you go. Are we dicking about with the playoffs this year? Um. i really like to think we can secure automatic promotion. And everything that I've seen from from Daniel, everything that I've seen from the squad has just reinforced that belief. So I'm getting, you know, I get more confident by the day. I'm really pleased with the transfer window. I think, you know, bear in mind how long Daniel's had with the team, how much transition he's had to manage, the new players that he's had to, had to bring in. You know, I'm really excited for what we can do um, after the international break. What I would say is that um, I think... People have to remember in the years that we got promoted, we had some really tricky spots. People seem to forget about it, but you know, we were there were games. I remember, I remember Patrick um, missing a penalty away at QPR. I don't know if we lost one 0 or you know, and and the fan base were like, "It's all over. It's not going to happen." We're you know, we're going down. So I think you know, this league will have moments where where we will uh, you know, it will it will dent our confidence. But um, from from what I see from behind the scenes, I'm really confident that that uh, we should we should be able to secure automatic promotion fingers crossed thanks for coming down angus pleasure guys the square ball podcast
4: small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right